Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey everyone, I'm your favorite ER MacGyver, Dr. Ward. And this is Praz the Sandman, numbing your minds to new depths of discovery through the radio waves. Once again, we have reached our, our bi-weekly, bi-monthly, I never know the right term for it, but either way, it's time for another... Journal Club! This week, the theme of our journal articles is old dog, new tricks. A whole bunch of studies I came across this week really seem to be addressing things that we've known about for a long time and have found maybe a little bit of a new way to handle them. But before we get into that, I have to ask, are either of you familiar with bite massage? No, not until you mentioned it. I don't even like it when my masseuse touches my feet or hands. So bite massage is definitely out of the question. Yeah, I'm not a fan of being touched by strangers in general. I don't find massage to be largely that relaxing. And the idea that someone's going to just straight up bite me and also... Ward, you and I have talked on previous episodes about how filthy the human mouth is in general. It's the filthiest part of your body. Well, maybe it's the second filthiest part of your body, period. It's pretty filthy. I came across this headline in the Daily Mail that says, Celebrity Massage Therapist, and that should tell you everything you need to know right there, but Celebrity Massage Therapist reveals she bites her A-list clients on their backs in a technique designed to tenderize muscles. And it's Dr. Dot, a.k.a. Dorothy Stein. I should note right here, not a real doctor. A PhD or... Nope. She is a massage therapist. She was nicknamed Dr. Dot by musician Frank Zappa in the early days of her career when she used her skills to get free concert tickets and meet her favorite rock stars backstage. Literally backstage, apparently. (laughs) Dot made her first forays into therapeutic biting at the age of five, encouraged by her mother. And apparently her mother wanted this five-year-old to massage her, but the hands weren't strong enough. So she just kept on saying, bite me. I hope she does not offer a happy ending for that kind of massage. She's done it to people like Sting, Simon Cowell, Def Leppard. She gives people the the choice. She doesn't just bite them without warning, which I guess is nice. That's what you're looking for in a bite therapist. You don't want to walk into some weird kind of Fifty Shades thing. (laughs) Or do you? But then before adding any oil, she bites the whole back up and down bit by bit, neck, shoulders, and sometimes the glutes. I don't know what else to say about this. Like there's, there is literally, and I searched, believe me, I searched for any kind of medical justification or backing. And I found a whole bunch of history of Swedish massage and 
deep massage and time massage. I learned enough for a whole future episode on health and wellness in spas. But I did not find any history of biting people for wellness before this. I'm willing to keep an open mind. I think about the disgusting or unpleasant massages we've had while traveling. Josh and I have had a terrible uh, oil massage in, in India where I felt like I got dirtier and less relaxed. So that was your first the, mistake, the getting a massage in India. <laughs> well, look, <laughs> now I know. Now I know. Smarter, wiser. We've learned valuable lessons. The strangest the strangest massage I've ever seen and did not get to take part of was an elephant Ooh. foot massage where you lie on the ground and an elephant gently lowers a foot onto your back. And that also seems highly dangerous. Maybe it's not so yeah. wacky after all. I would say that maybe you have to try it to, to either say, no, this stinks or yes, yeah, really. But I, I want to emphasize to anybody who is considering getting a bite massage, it is very important that whoever is going to do this doesn't break skin because that's when you are creating an opportunity for all the many bacteria that live in our mouth naturally to get in and cause an infection. So while I remain very dubious as to the utility of a bite massage. The most important thing is don't let it break skin and provide openings mm-hmm. for infection. Right. Also, H- hepatitis, exactly. HIV, uh, you're at risk, at risk for all, all, those, all of those yeah, if, you, if the skin is broken. It's a therapy that can really come <laughs> back and bite you in uh, the ass. Seems like kind of a ripoff. I yeah. could get mosquitoes to do it for free. Well, plus sure there's a malaria risk. <laughs> I'm sure it's only a matter of time till we see <laughs> mosquito massage. But that brings us to sort of our first... Our first topic of this week, and it's one that does tie in a lot to travel. And I think it's important that as long as we're talking about backs, that we talk about the lost art of bending over. Now, Ward and I, when we've traveled, and I I imagine when you've traveled as well, Praz, people don't bend over outside the U.S. the same way they bend over in it. And we say this as people who have traveled a lot in less industrialized nations that are very agricultural heavy or very rural. And people do spend a lot of time kind of stooped yeah, over. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed this as well. I actually didn't really think about it until I read this article. I, I was like, you know what? Actually, you're right. People in working in rice paddies or corn paddies or um, – as our case in Papua New Guinea, they did look like they bent at a different angle from your average American. Well, you're right, Ward. And and even in the U.S. agricultural system, you know, a lot of the migrant workers who are picking berries or other crops, uh, even here, are not necessarily bending over the same way that you or I might to get something off the floor. So we're going to have you guys at home try a simple experiment to see if you're bending correctly. And there is a correct way to bend that we'll try and teach you. So the first thing I want you to do, and you know, for those of you who are not commuting, obviously you can't do this in a car, is just stand up and put your hands on your waist, you know, the superhero pose. And now imagine that somebody has dropped some change or money in front of you and ask you to pick it up what was your first instinct like, oh my What's god the first there's money you where did? where i'm gonna guess the first thing you did is exactly. you tilted Looking your head for the down money, essentially so apparently that's already sort of the wrong way to go about it because even that little look down can bend your spine and then you're starting to bend you're bending actually at your stomach and in the process you're starting to curve your back into the letter c but in places like papua new guinea or rice paddies throughout asia and thailand and japan or again in agricultural workers here you see that people are bent over looking more like tables. They hinge from the hip and they look like their backs are nearly parallel to the ground. For those of us in a more Western setting, you might see it as you're doing your sun salutations in yoga for people who go in for that sort of thing. You know, it's interesting. I actually see this to a fair degree when I place epidurals, actually. One of the first things they teach us is about the natural curvature of the back. Truth be told, bending forward is only really natural for your thoracic spine, which is the upper back. But your lower back and your neck actually are more naturally curved to go the opposite direction, to be more lordotic or bent backwards, I say. So what you're saying is true. When you do look down, it already starts to take away from the natural curvature of that part of the spine. And that means when people bend the way that most of us do, tilting your head forward and then hinging kind of from your stomach, you're putting 
unnecessary pressure on your spine, and that puts more stress on the spinal discs. So spinal discs are you know, little rings of collagen, uh, like cushioning, in between each vertebrae, which form a joint. Basically, your back is all supported by muscles. Your spine, say, is the midline, and that's the basically the center of support. And there's various accessory muscles surrounding the spine on either side. When you do bend in an unnatural position, it does not only does it skew those muscles, but it also skews the disc between the vertebrae, like you were saying, that could push pressure and ultimately lead to arthritis and lower back pain. And low back pain is one of the biggest problems that we see throughout medicine. Uh, yeah, and interesting, Praz mentioned the anatomy, and you mentioned the anatomy, Josh. I, I think we both see it in our elderly patients. It's the usually the cervical spine and the lumbar spine that cause uh, that have the most arthritis and the most problems for people. And I think it's probably because directly related to how much we bend it and use it. The thoracic spine, for the most part, it's kind of fixed rigid because the rib cage attaches to the thoracic spines. So it's kind of protected. But as we age and we use that cervical spine, which is our neck, when we turn our heads sideways up and down, and most importantly, our lumbar spine, these body parts kind of get worn out and get arthritic and bone spurs start to form and cause a lot of pain and disability. Given that, what is the proper way to bend over? And habits like these can be very, very hard to change. Well, the way that everyone around the world does it is really called hip hinging. And When you bend from the hip, which is a ball and socket joint, you also, in addition to keeping the back straight, engage the hamstrings, which means you stretch the hamstrings. It is not completely vanished from our culture. Weightlifters hip hinge when they deadlift. Baseball players use it to bat. And apparently in football, players kneel at the line of scrimmage with hip hinging. I can't testify to that because I don't really know a lot about football. It makes but sense, that's I guess, in hindsight. Told. Yeah, football players, your linebacker weighs, what, over 200 pounds? If they were bending over all the time and putting all that strain on their lumbar spines, it wouldn't work well. But putting them on their hips, putting on their hip joints, that's what hips are made to do. So how do you properly hip hinge? Well, the first thing is you place your feet about 12 inches apart or shoulder length apart. You keep your back straight. That doesn't mean forcing it into an uncomfortable ramrod position. It means, you know, trying to stand up straight. Good posture, like you were taught by your parents. As you bend your knees, allow your pubic bone to move backward and, as, and fold over by allowing your pubic bone to slide through your legs down and back. Now, I realize describing that over the radio is very tricky, so I'm going to steal this bit from NPR, and they tell you, imagine if you are a figure in in the Christian Bible, where would you put your fig leaf? Imagine your hand on your fig leaf, or put your actual hand on your fig leaf if you're in the privacy of your own home, go nuts. And when you bend, you want to feel that fig leaf move through your legs, down and back. You're using the large muscles of your glutes, your hips, and those muscles are designed to support the whole weight of your body instead of the tiny muscles supporting your mid-back. Right, so you're turning your whole pelvis parallel to the floor. Oh, you know, try and practice that when you have to bend to pick things up and over. And certainly, I think we're going to see a lot more, truthfully, I think we're going to see a lot more cervical back pain starting yeah, to come I've heard up about that as too. everybody gets huh. tech neck from being on their phones all the time. I see that all the time in the ER. Neck pain is one of right. one of the more common complaints that we see in the emergency, emergency. Just wait until the millennials get old. Oh my God. <laughs> but sometimes I think there's just not enough thumbs <laughs> in the day to text as fast Love as I want segue. to. Love but it. good news because the next one I found is not so much a journal article as it is a unique project. And I saw this on Boing Boing, which is a a ridiculously named website that does have a lot of great up-to-date news. And it was talking about the Alternative Limb Project and a London product designer, Dunny Claude, has created a prosthetic thumb Now, this doesn't sound that impressive because you think, well, sure, there's lots of prosthetic limbs that take place now. We're seeing in the Paralympics where there's like robot sort of legs and all these unique arms and digits. But the unique thing here is that this designer created a thumb not to replace a missing digit, but just to give people an extra thumb. It's the third thumb project. It straps onto your hand and there's a video linked in our show notes 
it straps onto your hand on the opposite side of your actual thumb and is controlled by two pedals on each of your big toes. So it's almost like gear shifting for those of you who still drive manual. One toe controls horizontal motion and the other controls vertical motion. And with that, you can use two toes to manipulate your third thumb. And the whole thing just looks amazing. It it sounds very cumbersome, using your toes to control something in your hand. It's pretty trippy. I don't know. Well, okay, it's funny you said texting because, you know, phones are getting bigger and bigger. And I I like one-handed typing on the phone. And I just, I find that my one thumb on my right side can't quite reach the other side of the phone. It would be awesome, actually, if I had this extra thumb on the other side. Right. And the extra thumb allows you to do things like crack eggs, swipe an iPhone or text on an iPhone one-handed, and squeeze a lemon with only yeah. one hand. Hike, and I want to hitchhike in both directions. <laughs> you know, that problem will be gone forever. Which way are you going? Well, this way for a while, and then this way. <laughs> exactly. But it does bring up the really interesting field of body modification. And, you know, this is a real sci-fi concept that we've seen in shows like Black Mirror or Helix or Orphan Black, all of which talk about a real genuine subset of our population that is looking into alternative body enhancements to kind of expand upon the human experience. We're not quite to the point of growing tails and adding wings, but certainly taking the things our bodies can already do and finding ways to enhance them. So what would you use a third thumb for? Well, this in the video, you see one gentleman is using it to play a guitar, and he's able to fret with one hand and... Oh, that makes sense. Oh my gosh, there are six strings in the guitar, and I only have five fingers. So there are a lot of uses. Now, as you mentioned that it sounds very counterintuitive to control it using two toes, but think, when you were learning to drive, you have to keep your eyes on the road while all your limbs are doing things independently of you really being aware of it. And it becomes reflex muscle memory after a while. So I imagine that while there would be a learning curve for this, after a certain period of time, it would become very natural to just kind of have this strapped on thumb hmm. uh, that does things. Yeah. I wonder how do people deal without it once they've gotten used <laughs> to having it? Yeah, pretty soon if everyone starts you have using a phantom it, limb start, for a they're going to start making have. other devices like extra thumb friendly. Who knows? <laughs> it's not available for mass sale or I would have already you know shut up and handed them my money. But... I do encourage everybody to go take a look at the Alternative Limb Project where they not only help to design real-looking prosthetic limbs, but do a couple really interesting artistic takes. One girl has a feather uh, or a kind of a wing arm. Another one has an arm that her pet snake can crawl in and out of in case you needed nightmare fuel. There's a lot of different things that people have gone to them and requested because they said, look, I'm already missing a limb. I know people are going to look at me. I want to stand out. I want this to be special. And I want to feel like I'm owning that attention as opposed to suffering from it. Let's move on to the ones that are a little bit more science heavy. And the first is something that we're all very familiar with, and that's diabetes. I don't think there's a single one of our specialties that it doesn't touch in some way. For bigger surgeries, at least, we had to try to actively control it with things like insulin drips. But a lot of other things, I mean, impaired renal function as a result of diabetes could be an issue. Gastroparesis from diabetes could make someone an aspiration risk, things like that. Diabetes hits from head to toe. I mean, it can literally have complications from head to toe. Everything from strokes, you can have heart attacks. Uh, kidney failure, yeah. skin problems, down to the toes. You could literally lose toes from toes and fingers from diabetes. Yeah, diabetic foot infections are some of the most dreaded things that I have to see. It almost always means osteomyelitis or an infection that goes all the way down to the bone. Right. Uh, now, for years, we've classified diabetes as initially insulin-dependent and non-insulin-dependent, and then it became reclassified into just type 1 and type 2 which was autoimmune, meaning your body attacks its own insulin cells and they and you never really have any to produce insulin, or 
Type 2, which was insulin resistant, meaning over time you made insulin, but your body just responded to it less and less. You built up a tolerance. Well, diabetes just got a little bit more complicated or clearer depending on your perspective when just this month, researchers in Scandinavia published a study in The Lancet, and that's a big, well-respected journal, that they propose classifying diabetes into five subtypes rather than two. Now, this doesn't mean there's going to be a diabetes type four and six and whatever. It's all still the same diabetes, but how it affects people is looked at a little bit differently. Well, I bet you it's going to affect treatment as well and prognosis. In people with type 1 diabetes, usually that happens, it's most often diagnosed in childhood. And as I said, the body can't make insulin, which is a hormone that helps glucose or sugar get into your cells. And that's because the body's immune system attacks the cells. So type 2 has now suggested reclassifying into four different subtypes. So cluster 2 would be similar to cluster 1. People who are relatively young are not overweight, are producing insulin, but they just don't have autoantibodies. They may have a deficiency in the cells that produce insulin. So the body's not attacking them, but for whatever reason, their cells just aren't producing. So it's fairly similar to type 1, quote-unquote, because it's a lack of insulin that's causing the uh, high blood sugar levels or poor sugar control. Right, without being attacked by the body's own cells. Then cluster 3 would be called severe insulin-resistant diabetes. This form occurs in people who are very often overweight and had high insulin resistance, meaning their bodies do make sufficient insulin, but their cells just don't really respond to it. That would probably be where most of the diabetics we see in the hospital often tend to fall. Yeah, that's the classic type 2 diabetes is middleweight, overweight, insulin resistant, and then it's essentially their pancreas is will burn out from producing more and more insulin, trying to compensate for the uh, insulin resistance. And now they're both insulin uh, resistant and deficient. People in this cluster were found to have the highest risk of kidney disease, which is a very big complication of diabetes, while people in cluster two, the one that sounds like Mm -hmm. autoimmune, uh, had the highest risk of retinopathy, which is a complication that can cause vision loss. So already... Two of the biggest complications we see with diabetes, kidney and eye disease, have sort of been separated out into, oh, well, if you have this kind, we know this is a higher risk. And if you have this kind, we know that kidney is a higher risk. Do you think, do you think the cluster three people are because it's because they're part of that whole metabolic syndrome with diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol, so their kidneys get knocked out more frequently? I think that's a very good argument you could make. And that also leads into cluster four, which is called mild obesity-related diabetes, which was found in people who had, as it sounds like, a milder form of the disease without as many metabolic problems as those in cluster three. They simply tended to be obese and beginning to develop some of these Mm problems. Uh, And they had lower incidences of things like Mm. kidney disease and eye disease, but they still had a higher risk of heart disease. Not higher than the other groups, but higher than the general population. And the last one, cluster five, was called mild age-related diabetes instead of obesity-related. This form is similar to cluster four, but people were older at their age of diagnosis. And this was the most common form of diabetes in the study found in people, again, about who wouldn't be diagnosed till maybe they were in their 40s or 50s, just as kidney function decreases with age, heart function decreases with age, memory function decreases with age. This is you kind of age into this diabetes. And that has a lot to do with just what the Western diet is and less with direct damage or insulin resistance. We put a big strain on our bodies with the kind of foods that we eat oh, on I our Western in, diet. In, in Papua New Guinea, when I noticed that the, the, the less wealthy people who couldn't afford Coca-Cola, who couldn't afford sugary colas, I almost never saw diabetes in, in those patients. But in the wealthier people who could afford sugary sodas like colas, uh, they were they were a lot of new uh, newly diagnosed diabetics. 
Recognizing different subtypes might actually change the way we prescribe medication. Right now, the tendency is a one size fits all. We start people on metformin. If you are found to have diabetes and it's not at a high enough level that we jump straight to insulin, we start you on metformin right. and then oh, add with the other drugs if it With the exception work. of childhood. But, it's interesting uh, because diabetes is one of the trickiest illnesses to treat in spite of um, how free- common it is. Goes free, yeah. I don't know right. that there is a like, great insulin. way to really keep it under control. And it may be because they were taking all these subtypes and mixing them together and treating the same way. This could really make a big difference. Yeah, so recognizing the subtype might help in guiding more targeted therapy that can keep people better controlled longer. Now, the researchers did note that their study can't confirm whether there are different causes behind each of these subtypes or whether people might change over time. For example, could you move from a mild age-related diabetes into a more aggressive insulin resistance? Could you- Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You come from an obesity related. Uh, or could you come from a severe insulin resistance into a mild obesity related? So there's still a lot of areas of investigation going forward. But yeah, if this proposed absolutely. classification is adopted, it might lead to a much more tighter control from the medical side of things, making it easier for people to adhere to treatments. Now, the next study I thought had an adorable title, although it is actually a very good study. And it's Miniature personalized tumors could help you get the best chemo. Doesn't that sound cute? Oh, it's a miniature tumor. And it's personalized. Mini-Me kind of looks like a tumor already. So that's adorable. Mini-Me from uh, Austin Powers. That's right. Well, certainly there's a big part of this country in particular that focuses on artisan everything. We want everything to be handcrafted and individually based and 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 carefully selected and organically picked and why shouldn't we have our cancers the same way it's an organic it's an organic petri dish of cancers artisanal cancers so growing miniature tumors in the lab could help doctors discover the best way to treat each patient basically when we're selecting chemotherapy oncologists who are the specialists who deal with this have a number of different chemotherapy drugs that they may try. And a lot of these have been selected based on their broad strokes of what they do for brain tumors or bladder tumors or what specific tissue might take up another specific kind of drug. And none of these chemo drugs are without some pretty heavy side effects. So you want to know that the drug you're receiving is going to work. Right. It's, and it's never, almost never one. It's like usually a combination of like CHOP or, you know, uh, what are the others? It looks like four or five medications, and each each and every one of them can have yeah, some potentially no, pretty absolutely. toxic side effects. Chemotherapy is some of the most dangerous medications we can take. Now, in the last 10 to 15 years, cancer treatment has been much more guided by genetic sequences. And what happens then is your oncologist and or surgeon will go in and get a sample of tissue from your primary tumor, meaning if you have a lung cancer, they need a sample of the lung mass. If you have a bowel cancer, they need a sample of the bowel mass. And they look at the genetic sequences of that tumor and then try and choose a chemotherapy regime that will best treat based on those sequences. But Nicola Valeri of the Institute of Cancer Research in London have come up with a different approach. And they did this with a study 
that took about 110 biopsies from tumors, not all from one person. This was over a selection of people. And they, all of these biopsies were secondary tumors from 71 people with cancers that had spread from either the bowel, the esophagus, or the bile. So rather than trying to get into areas that might be difficult to achieve a primary tumor, especially in the liver, which is a very vascular organ, meaning there's a high risk of bleeding. If you go from anything in the gallbladder liver area, they instead said, we know your cancer has spread locally or distally. Let's get a sample of one of those areas that it's spread. And they took the cells from these mini tumors and grew them up in Petri dishes and then tested 55 standard chemo drugs on each kind of tumor in the dish to see which were best at killing them. So the test showed, and this is significant, with 100% accuracy, which drugs hadn't worked when tried in the patient who donated the cell. So they could know for sure that if a drug did not work on the Petri dish, on the artisan-based tumor, that it would not work on the patient. That's pretty good. So that's half the stuff. That is The tests were also 88% accurate at predicting drugs that would successfully shrink tumors in the patients. So now, not only would you know for sure this chemo drug won't work, you'd have about an 80% chance of if it worked on the artisan personalized tumor, there was an 80% chance that it would work in the actual person. Well, this lets makes it really, as we said, personalized. So maybe in my bowel cancer... I would use a standard R-CHOP-based therapy. I'm assuming I'm picking the right chemotherapy. I'm not an oncologist and keeping all these straights a little CHOP tricky. CHOP is the only one I remember from medical but, school because it sounded cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember CHOP being one of the big chemotherapy <laughs> regimes. And I remember we use a lot of platinum-based ones in bladder cancers. But, but past that, I'm not sure. Uh, but let's say, you know, Roz, <laughs> you have one type of cancer and I have another type of cancer and they're both in the bowel somewhere. And we go to our personalized tumor breweries and they give a cocktail of tumors to each of our cells. And they find out that in me, they could use, you know, chop one, but in you, they'd have to use some completely different set, even though we have tumors that look the same on the surface. And that would save both of us a lot of time and suffering in the overall treatment plan because rather than say, well, we tried this for at least a six to eight week cycle and it's not really working, we're going to move to the next, they can know right off the bat and without either one of us having to go through those dreadful side effects, they can know right off the bat, these are not going to work in this person while these have a very good percentage of working. Well, doctors already do this in infectious disease, right? If you were infected with pneumonia or sepsis, we take blood cultures and we grow out the bacteria and we throw all sorts of antibiotics at it. and We get a sensitivity report and say, oh, yeah. this bacteria is sensitive to penicillin, but not so much to you know erythromycin. So then the doctors custom tailor their treatment plans. Why not cancers? I love that you brought up antibiotic selection, Ward, because one of the biggest problems we see with that is antibiotic resistance in in drugs. So this is almost a way to test for cancer resistance to a certain drug. Very, very interesting going forward. Although I just, I'm picturing a whole bunch of hipster patients with cancer being like, Well, you know, I like this blend of chemo, but my doctor was doing it before it was cool. (laughs) You must try the Sumatra. It's it's to die for. Oh, no, that's a terrible pun. I like my Tanzania (laughs) platinum, but this Sumatran chop is just great. (laughs) And another very common problem that we deal with in the healthcare field, other than diabetes, other than cancer, is lung disease and specifically asthma. We've made a few strides in asthma treatment over the years, but largely we're really still limited to mostly just nebulizer treatments or inhaled corticosteroids. Well, asthma and um, COPD, which stands for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, there, there are two components to it. So asthma, it's the immediate effect is bronchoconstriction. So the little tubes in our lungs 
which are responsible for passing air through down to the, you know, the little bubbles, the alveolar level, they constrict abnormally because of irritation, because of hypersensitivity, because of, for all sorts of reasons. So when patients with asthma have an acute asthma exacerbation or a COPD flare in COPD patients, the little tubules in their lungs just constrict. And when they constrict, air can't come in and they can't come out and you can't breathe. That is an immediate life-threatening condition, not to mention that it feels just lousy. You feel awful. You feel like there's uh, pressure in your chest. The second component to that is actually a more uh, chronic problem, which is the inflammation around the little tubules. So the tubules not only constrict abnormally, they get inflamed and they thicken up. And the little smooth muscles around the, the, the little bronchioles get stronger and more tight and that's a chronic condition. It needs to be addressed with chronic medications. So right now, what we usually do is the immediate treatment for acute asthma exacerbation is we try to open up those tubules with bronchodilators, which are, you know, your albuterol, your ipotropium. Sometimes even in really bad cases, we use uh, magnesium and epinephrine to open up those tubules. To deal with the inflammation part, we usually give a, a pretty heavy dose of steroids, both inhaled and oral or IV steroids. Usually inhaled steroids we don't give in the, uh, in the emergency department because they take long, too long to affect the, the tubules. So we give usually a oral dose or an IV dose. And all of these medications have potential side effects. Right. So with steroids, they depress the immune system. That's what they're supposed to do. And, but they also increase the risk of secondary infections as a result of that. And a lot of these nebulizers will have the side effect of speeding up mm-hmm. the heart rate, which can be tricky in people who often come in with corresponding heart conditions. That's really sort of all we've had available for the last several years. A long time ago, there used to be a drug called theophylline. It's still used a little bit, much less now. I mention it only because as an internal medicine physician, Our specialty is known for being a little bit nerdy, and I think it's fascinating to know that in a tropical setting or when we're out far afield in, for example, Papua New Guinea or any of these jungle medicine type things, if you don't have steroids around and someone's having an asthmatic attack, one of the things you can do is, do you remember this word? Which one? You give them coffee. Yeah, theophylline is closely related to caffeine. I know it from the other end from learning my toxicology, in overdoses, massive overdoses, their effects are very similar. Yeah, so if someone's having an asthma attack, you just pump as much caffeine as you can into them one way or the other, and that's to kind of keep help keep some of the airways open. It's not a common right. treatment in youth anymore, but it is. I found it to be fascinating just as a historical sort of thing. So this newest drug that's being studied, and this study came out in Science and Translational Medicine and was conducted by Luis Uloa in Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. He worked with Shanghai University in China over four years and examined over 6,000 different compounds and identified a drug known as TSG-12 that relaxes the muscles and opens the airways in those with asthma without causing the side effects that are very common to our existing treatments. And it also helps to prevent pulmonary resistance in egg and dust mite-induced asthma. Out of curiosity, does this say how fast-acting this drug is? I don't know if I caught that in the article. Uh, So they're looking to move into clinical trials now. The way they found it was this protein they identified okay. called metallothionine, which was noted to be 50% lower in asthmatic lung tissue. And the protein acts to relax smooth muscle cells and open the airway. So it's basically another pathway to bronchodilate. And they found that mice who had this knockout protein, meaning they didn't have the protein, were two to three times more likely to get asthma and giving them that protein back improved the, pre- the breathing difficulties. Once they identified it by transmitting, and I love, it says they identified the protein after transmitting short electrical impulses into mice through electroacupuncture needles. I don't quite know how 
uh, mice electric acupuncture identified the protein. Maybe there'll be a new treatment for asthma, acupuncture therapy. I, I don't know how many people are going to sign up to have electric needles put into them to to fix their breathing. But it did help them to identify the protein, and then they reverse <laughs> engineered that protein into this drug, TSG-12, that they think will provide much better therapeutic treatments. So now they're going to start clinical trials on presumably a small group of people now that they have identified some benefits in mice. And that's when they'll get that information about how long it takes to act and whether this would be a better emergency room treatment or whether it would be a better outpatient treatment, helping to manage different kinds of asthma over well, the long Well, yeah, current term. medications, they're, they're mostly beta agonists and they have effects on oh, – everything from the heart to blood vessels. They can affect your blood pressure and your heart rate. So hopefully if this is a lung-specific, bronchiole-specific, right at the site of the problem, and it's only in the lungs, hopefully there won't be any you know, cardiac or, um, or heart side effects. And that brings us to the last study. Now, admittedly, this is an older study, but as I came across it, I had such a hearty chuckle that I felt I needed to share it with you guys. You know, every now and again, we like to sit here and just imagine these scenarios. How fast does the Grim Reaper walk? Because let's face it, slow walkers are one of the biggest irritations in life. And if you're one of those people who's a slow walker, oh, you'll make me so angry. I I feel like this is a problem that is unique to cities. Not because there aren't slow walkers out in more rural or suburban settings, but just because people there aren't in as much of a rush. Those of us living in places like Chicago, L.A., Miami, New York, uh, Pennsylvania somewhere. (laughs) Pros lives in the New York of Pennsylvania. Although in Pennsylvania somewhere, people do tend to not be in as much of a rush, so they're usually okay. What's going on with these small walkers? I always feel like I'm that much closer to death having to amble along behind them. I'm like, oh, come on, I got places to be. Clearly, these British researchers wanted to answer that question. So the objective, according to the abstract, was to determine the speed at which the Grim Reaper or death walks using a population-based prospective study. And the setting was older community-dwelling men living in Sydney, Australia. So they looked at 1,700 men at the age of 70 or older who are participating in a different study called CHAMP. And they looked at walking speed and mortality. And based on that, and look, I'm going to be upfront and tell you right off the top, this study is going to have a huge number of confounds and it was done more for fun and not to necessarily provide any real advancement in the field. So, So take all of this with a grain of salt, even though it was conducted very, very scientifically. Basically, they looked at how fast people walked and at what age they died, accounted for a bunch of other factors, which I'll link to the study so you can read it yourself, and determined that the average walking speed of the 70-year-old male was around 0.88 or 0.88 meters per second which equivalent to three kilometers per hour or two miles an hour. That's, All right. That's, that's, that's your average walking speed yeah, of a 70 year old Australians man. Are that's, pretty not fast. Bad. that's the average walking speed of a 70 year old Australian <laughs> man. And as we know, everything in Australia can kill you. But I would think it's a pretty fair assessment that across the world, you could expect to find somewhere between a one to two mile walking speed per hour. I think that's a reasonable right. estimate. Survival analysis showed that older men who walked faster than two miles an hour were 1.3 times less likely to die with a 95% confidence interval over the next five years than those who walked slower than two miles an hour. A sensitivity of one was obtained when a walking speed of three miles an hour or greater was used, indicating that no men with walking speeds of three miles an hour or five kilometers an hour or greater had contact with death. <laughs> That's a 20-minute mile, yes? That doesn't seem, well, I guess for a seven-year-old. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. So the conclusion 
is the Grim Reaper's preferred walking speed is about two miles an hour under working conditions. As none of the men in the study with walking speeds of three miles an hour or greater had contact with death, this seems to be his most likely maximum speed. For those wishing to avoid their allotted fate, walk faster than three miles an hour. Well, they always say inactivity leads to higher mortality rate, right? Maybe... As yeah, and going deeper in, and I kind of just read the abstract, but as you go deeper into the paper, it does show that being in the lowest fourth of walking speeds in the population is associated with a threefold increased risk of mortality. Now, that could be because the lowest fourth of walking speeds are also the people who are the oldest, the sickest. There's a lot of different reasons why there might be that correlation or association. But I like that they took this one minor correlation and really just... Well, can I just say that the Grim it. Reaper is not very fast for someone who's as feared, he doesn't have to be. Uh, who, <laughs> as feared and as fabled as the Grim Reaper. He's only walking less than two miles an hour. Okay, he's but pretty good. Having I'll said give that, you that, he does have a hundred percent success rate. <laughs> and you know, again, he doesn't have to be fast. He's implacable. For a great example of this, have either of you seen? Oh, you know what? What was the name of the movie? I'm trying to remember. Um, I kept thinking of it as a sexually transmitted ghost. The movie Ghost. No, 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 not not Ghost. It was called It Follows. That was it. Um, oh yeah, was it the 90s I slasher, remember this movie. Slasher movie? <laughs> no, it was a 2015 oh. indie horror film. It was very bizarre. And the basic premise was, uh, well, like I said, it was a sexually transmitted ghost. That it took a while before the main characters figured it out, but. If you had this ghost who or this demon who would show up and start following you and would walk very slow at what we can presume is two, you know, two miles an hour. And if it caught you, you would die. Either it would strangle you, drown you, do something, but you could outrun it pretty easily. And it would often appear as like an elderly person or something slow moving. And the only way to get the curse away from you was to sleep with somebody and then it would start following them. But once it caught up to and killed that person, it would then go back to following you. So really, the only way to avoid this death by demon was to be very promiscuous, giving the demon a huge to-do list before it could kill you. And I, I walked out of that movie thinking, sexually transmitted ghost. Could you have yeah. with a condom? <laughs> well, I mean, if you had a condom on, then you wouldn't catch the ghost from maybe the person who already had it but if you already had the ghost right, the whole point saying. was you wanted that's to what i'm saying if i were a condom you didn't want it to catch. potentially avoid that ghost so yeah that's that's it for for this week's journal club uh ward i think you are the most recent one of us to travel do you have any oh, I do. just the tip i to recently share? uh i recently made a trip to japan in the winter and I was wondering, you know, Japan gets pretty cold in the winter. I was thinking about doing an activity that kind of counteracts that cold, right? So up in the Japanese Alps, there is an area where there are a lot of hot springs. And the Japanese people can kind of worked the hot springs into their culture and their rituals. And they have these wonderful towns with guest houses and hot springs that flow through the, the, the channel, the hot springs through the pipes into their into little private baths so they call them onsens uh or loosely translated their their hot spring spas and they're in the middle of the japanese alps kind of by nagano where they they held the um, the olympic winter olympic games a few years ago and it's they're just beautiful mountain towns you are in these um in the remote mountain areas of japan the mountains are snow-capped and not only do the humans enjoy these these wonderful hot springs, the local macaws or the snow monkeys also love the hot springs because it gets really cold up there. So uh, there are parks in these uh, in the areas of uh, near Nagano and Yudanaka where there is a park and you can just hike into the uh, wilderness mountains and there are these natural springs where when it gets cold, every day the snow monkeys after their daily foraging and they do their daily work. They put in their nine to five. They all gather together and jump into the hot springs to warm themselves. And it, that's where you get these classic photo shots of um, of snow monkeys with snow on their on their heads, but their bodies are immersed in these these wow. steaming hot spring pools. And it, it's it's just lovely. And to to get there I from think, Tokyo, I would take the their bullet train. It's only a few hours. 
while I would strongly discourage anybody from climbing Ooh. into an onsen with a bunch of monkeys as the results They're could be sharing, unpredictable, <laughs> to say not. the least. Uh, but I would warn you, Ward, that depending on where you are in the time of year, just because you should not climb into a bath with the monkey does not mean that they will not will share, show you the same courtesy. The monkeys have been known to occasionally climb into baths because they want to relax. Oh, yeah, these Tourists are, be damned. My little private onsen did, didn't have any monkeys invade, but these monkeys are notoriously known for behaving badly. They will snatch food out of your hands. They will they they will take cameras away from tourists. And I'm sure if they got the chance and if they uh, if they saw an open door, they would jump into the uh, hot springs with you. Hey, if I'm lucky, maybe I'll get a free bite massage. <laughs> oh. That's another level. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll just leave it there. Monkey bite massages in in hot springs in Japan. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of support from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes. And until next time, as always, happy travels. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.